Everyone's a fruit and a nutcase. It keeps you going when you toss the cable. Whatever you are doing, punting, canoeing, is nutritious and nutritious to judiciously be chewing. Happy Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Museum of Comedy podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's water as well, unfortunately. So mine isn't. <laughs> no, so, so Baz, for those um, uh, honoured few here to see the uh, live recording of this, we just watched an episode of a show called Hello Cheeky. Yeah. Memories I of that. Didn't remember a thing of that. It's fascinating. Uh, I told Robert that uh, I've got a DVD at home of, of one we did, which is unedited. And it's chaos with cameras in shot and everything. And uh, my wife said, that's, that's the funniest one ever. But the speed of that, I, was, I shouldn't say it because I was in it, but the speed of that was impressive. But, of course, it was edited. You know, we were all rushing about like mad. But I'm glad they leave in things like my wig falling off. Mm. I think that's good. Mm. Uh, the BBC weren't interested at the time. We did a, several series, Hello Cheeky, on the radio. And BBC, understandably, they expressed no interest, but Yorkshire Television did. So we went up to Leeds and made those, and we went out on a Monday night on ITV and put Panorama's figures up. (laughs) 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 I said said to Robert earlier, I said, oh, God, I think it was the TV Times in those days, and put the three of us on the cover. I said, if they're going to say the new goons, question mark, we're dead. And it said, the new goons, question <laughs> No, never. No, I'm I, sorry, may I, am I allowed to say I enjoyed that? I yes. didn't remember yeah. we, We've cut the Cyril Smith gag now, but apart from oh, that... Oh, boy, it's that right. was a wind-smaking moment, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and BBC Three, of course, that's, that's dated now. Mm. But uh, it still stands up really well. But that was the last episode, so um, when are you going to get uh, Tim and Dennis together again for Series 3. Yes, indeed. We've uh, sadly lost John Junkin, but uh, there we are. John and I wrote a lot together. We wrote for Eric and Ernie a lot. And uh, I used to to irritate John enormously because I always referred to Eddie Braben as the (laughs) A-team. And John quite understandably got annoyed. But Eddie was superb because he changed Eric and Ernie's image. Mm, Oh, I was... Can I... Here we go. This is like Tourette's with me, stories. (laughs) Last week I was in King's Lynn, right... And uh, I remember, this is true, the great Vera Lynn, uh, during the Second World War and immediately afterwards, entertained the royal family so much, she was known as King's Lynn. (laughs) I am serious. And they'd never heard that in King's Lynn, which in turn, you'll get used to my butterfly brain, reminded me we were doing a show with Eric and Ernie and Vera was going to be the guest. And Eric Morecambe said, I think it'd be funny if she doesn't know we want her to sing go off and think about it. So we went off and thought about it. And she did it perfectly. So Ernie, the effusive host, says, Vera Lynn, enormous applause from the audience. Vera came on and Ernie said, "Uh, what are you going to sing for us, Vera? And she said, sorry. He said, what are you going to sing for us? She said, I didn't know you wanted me to sing. I thought I was just invited as a guest. So he went into panic mode. And Eric said, come here, sunshine. They went over to the other camera. And Ernie said, Vera doesn't know we wanted to sing. How can we get her to sing? And Eric said, short of starting another war, I've no idea. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm going to try and get a word in now. Anyway, so, um, so you mentioned... <laughs> it's always the same with Mary Cryer. Um, so you mentioned, obviously, Leeds. That's where you, you came from, and that's where you, you first started peddling your trade as a comedian. <coughs> yeah, and uh, Blue Eyes got to university and blew it. Uh, I feel sorry for this generation. They go into university in a state of debt, don't they? And mm. I got an exhibition or a scholarship or something, got into old Leeds University for nothing... Uh, very lucky so to do and just I was ashamed at the time because I chased girls and was seen in the union bar a lot my first year results showed it uh, and I'm BA Inglet failed of Leeds University and I always say it was due to the outbreak of the second world war which was 16 years before but upset me very deeply <laughs> But the thing, Robert, I'll get to the point. You're, you're praying I will. Um, I had no show business aspirations. We all sang songs and told jokes at university, and we did university shows at the old Empire Theatre, the rag reviews on the charity week. It was amazing. Mm. I had a half-baked idea of being a journalist or something. Writing, yeah, but that might not have happened. And, you know, you don't yeah. know looking yeah. back. Yeah. I've been dogged by good luck all my life. <laughs> So what, what, was your, what was your pattern in those days? I presume you wrote it yourself. Very similar. So. Yes, okay. <laughs> it's not yeah. changed a bit. Well, you had a tradition. I can't remember what song I used to do. All comics finish with a song yeah. and jokes. Oh, I was asked the other day, being old by journalists, what was the first joke you ever told in public? And I couldn't remember literally the first. But one of the jokes I told in uh, the Rag Review, the student show, was the guy driving down a country lane, run over a cockerel. And he was upset. And he went to the farmhouse, knocked on the door. Woman answered it. He said, I appear to have killed your cockerel. I'd like to replace him. She said, please yourself, the hen's around the back. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd finish up. Uh, I went to London and I had a 17-day rail return ticket. What you do when you're young? You know, you're going to conquer London in 17 days. And the day before my ticket ran out, I'm not making this up, I got a, an audition at the windmill. And they had conveyor belt auditions in the morning. Started about 10 o'clock. I was about half past 10 in the morning. And uh, I went on, and uh, this voice in the audience, which later transpired, it was a great man, the boss, Vivian Van Damme, known to us all as VT. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I told some jokes and sang a song. He said, do you know any more jokes? I said, yes, and I told some more. Another song? I said, well, I haven't brought any music. He said, well, Ronnie will busk for you. That was Ronnie Bridges, the pianist who became a friend. So I sang another song. Thank you. I thought, that's it. Then another man who became a friend called John Law took me off the stage and said, dressing room 12A. I said, what? He said, you're on. And I borrowed, in those days, pancake or something, mm -hmm. wearing the clothes I'd uh, done at the audition. And I was on the stage at half past 12, half past noon, uh, six shows a day, six days a week. 36 shows a week. That was a school. And the, the old man had me in his office between every show that first day, between the fish tank and his desk, <laughs> doing my act, and he changed it. That joke's very good. You tell it too early. I don't like that one. Here's another one. Changed my act in one day. Mm. And I never forgot that man. He was wonderful. And uh, there was a film with Judy Dench. I think they're doing a musical, they are, the yes. stage version Indeed, of it, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Mrs. Henderson Presents, mm. yeah. Mm. The only quarrel I had with that film was that there was no comic in it. There was always a comic at the windmill. There was a marvellous Geordie called uh, 
Jimmy Edmondson. And of course, the, the raincoats, as we affectionately refer to them, used to come to Windmill. And <laughs> there was a notice, patrons are requested not to climb over the seats. <laughs> and at the end of every show, you couldn't, oh, that was, sorry, that was a verbal announcement. You couldn't hear that announcement with the sound of them climbing over the seats. <laughs> to get near the front, you know. And Jimmy Edmondson came on in the mid-afternoon, you know, mm. oh boy. And a guy in the front, front row just opened a newspaper. And Jimmy said, oh, I see you brought your own comic. <laughs> <laughs> you learn to die with dignity. <laughs> and in, that's 1957, and at the windmill I met a man called Bruce Forsyth. Never found out what happened to him. <laughs> friends ever since. We had a windmill reunion oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. in Ham Yard off Great Windmill Street, uh -huh. which in the old days was a cobbled yard. I thought, Ham Yard? And I went there. It's now a big hotel and restaurant and everything. And Bruce and I, and the co-producer of that film I've just mentioned, we were about the only men there. Yeah. Bruce said, we were survivors. <laughs> a lot of great women, former windmill girls, but probably the all the comedians have dropped off the twig or well, something. They, I, I mean, know. obviously it was Peter Sellers was one, wasn't he? Yeah, Jimmy Harry Edwards Seacom. and all those people. There, yeah. is, there is a film that, that does have a comic in it, a 1948 film directed by Val Guest called Murder at the Windmill. That's right. Which has got John Pertwee and Peter Butterworth in it, which is worth searching out. That that's yeah. shows you what it was really like back in and the... Jimmy Edwards is yeah, in that. Yeah, he's in it. He does pop up, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was Tonight and Every Night, a sort of Hollywood film. It's based Peter on the Hayworth windmill. Peter Hayworth was in it. Yeah, yeah, it was too, yeah. too lavish. Yeah. The windmill wasn't like that at all. <laughs> So, what, but after that, you, you then got a, a West End job with Paul Schofield, didn't you? Which Pick was the names amazing. up as I dropped them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Expresso Bongo with an X. Nobody said Espresso in those days. <laughs> and uh, I was in a bed sit in North Finchley, and I got this audition based on Tommy Steele, really, the whole story. An actor called Jimmy Kenny played uh, the ostensible lead, but I mean, it was the great Paul Schofield playing his agent. And I thought, what am I going to do at my audition? So I sat in the uh, bedsit and I wrote a song called Espresso Bongo. Then I went to Doc Hunt, he said carefully. <laughs> Doc Hunt. <laughs> 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 Which was in Archer Street. And uh, I, I said, I want to hire a pair of bongos. And he was amused by this. He said, how long do you want them for? And I said, well, about two or three hours, and I think he charged me a quid or something. <laughs> Never played the bongos in my life. So I go to the Strand Theatre, and I'm in this dressing room, and I went on carrying these bongos, so they're now intrigued in the stalls. What are you going to do for us? I said, well, uh, I'll sing a song, all right. And I said, kid from a back street with a crazy beat, express your bongo, and all this, and they stopped. Terrible <laughs> silence. Monty Norman, who became a friend, came up on the stage and said, where did you get that song? I said, I, I wrote it last night. He said, thank God for that. He said, I thought we were going to get sued for copyright or something. I think I got the job through sheer cheek, you know. And, uh, but that man, Paul Schofield, we were in awe, you know, this theatrical giant, and he'd made films, and he'd never done a musical. And uh, they were thrilled that they got him. And we were in awe of the man, but he deflated that completely. He was so friendly. But he'd walk around at rehearsal still carrying the script, and we thought, oh, dear, the great Paul Schofield. Boy, when we opened, he was just wonderful. We opened in Newcastle, 
Theatre Royal in Newcastle, a very minimal set. Millie Martin was in it, Millicent Martin, and her flat was a flat, you know, a bit of scenery with stage weights. And Paul, during the rehearsals, he would come through the door and then kick it shut behind him. And he came on that first night and kicked the door and the whole thing fell over. <laughs> Dust rose, you could see the back wall of the stage, audience stunned silence. And Paul just looked down and said, mice. <laughs> <laughs> And I had a little scene with him in the show. This dates it, playing the leader of a skiffle group called Beast, my character. And I had a little scene with the great man. He's on and everything. And I'd sign my opening line and he'd go, where the fuck do you get that? <laughs> they told me a story. He played King Lear once and it was a rather arduous season. They weren't said, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> he did Hamlet in Moscow and the, the audience was packed with earnest students and it drove him mad. You could hear the pages being turned when he's doing Hamlet. And one night he went on, as Hamlet obviously, and did the stations of the Northern Line. <laughs> Edgware Road down to Morden or something. <laughs> Marvellous man. <laughs> And he, he told me he loved being in a, a musical. He'd never done a musical before. Mm -hmm. And his catchphrase was, don't say aloud then. His dressing room door was always open. Don't say aloud then. And we'd have drinks with him after the show. Oh, we loved the man. And afterwards, when the show closed, he went into the potting shed, a Graham Greene play. And I bumped into him in no fucking overture. <laughs> <laughs> MD told me, he said, the man had perfect pitch but would lose the rhythm of a song now and again and cut two bars and Bert would cut the whole band and the pianist would play until they found Paul again. <laughs> <laughs> Number one in Finland, a man called Sheb Woolley, who was a country singer and actor, he was one of the baddies in High Noon who were going to kill Gary Cooper, but he had a big hit with the Purple People Eater. His record wasn't issued in Scandinavia and they pushed out my little English cover version. Why did they ask you to record that? Uh, Ah, now, I made a reference to Frankie Vaughan earlier. He, he was one of my mentors, Frank, because we were Leeds background and everything. Lovely guy. And he was a big recording star, and he came with me to the audition. I mean, he's really putting the pressure on them. So they were on the press recording, I right. did. I did the three records, and the option <laughs> fell with a crash. But a short recording career. Because that song haunts you to this day, because you've had a, a milestone birthday this year, haven't you? You were, you were 40 Twice. Twice, yes. yes. And, um, and you, your cake was in the shape of a purple people eater. It was, indeed. <laughs> yeah, we did a recording uh, of the radio show and uh, the audience start... No, it was the stage version of our radio show we do. And the audience start laughing. There's something going on behind me and our producer was wheeling on big cake on a trolley with this extraterrestrial <laughs> thing on top of the cake. Oh, it's lovely. Fantastic. Dig it out on eBay somewhere. I'm sure you can get a copy. Um, Graham Chapman and I wrote 50 shows with Graham, who'd only written with John Cleese prior to that. And John used to say to Graham, are you being unfaithful to me with bass? <laughs> and we wrote a sitcom for Ronnie Corbett, No, That's Me Over Here, which is quite a long time before. Sorry, Frosty had spotted Graham and I becoming friends, but, mm. you know, he saw something about those two who could write together. 
And he was an amazing man. And talking about Graham Chapman, because obviously um, you did a lot of working in the pub with Graham. Yes. Yes. Which, I mean, it's a fast... Because there's a pub in Highgate called The Angel. The Angel. Which now has a, a blue a, plaque on it. Yes, and Mike Perlin said, God bless him, the plaque should have been on the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, was, it, was, it, was it down to you to sort of, like, really get him to, to, to work? Or was he... Was no, he... And I would go to... Uh, off Hornan Road and Southwood Lane in Highgate later. Because you that. like a pint as well occasionally, Baz. I'm sorry? You like a drink occasionally too, Barry, don't just, you? So, just the one, So yes. to put you and Graham together to write a, a no, sequel no, about but, a pub. No, no, yeah, no, cool. but bless oh. his heart, looking back, you'd arrive at his flat or his house subsequently about 10 o'clock in the morning and, uh, dear Graham, it was the old joke, I don't drink much, I spill a lot. <laughs> and he'd be putting a tonic in to something large at that time in the morning. And he was brilliant on construction, the plot. And, uh, and then we'd work away, and about half past 12, midday, go, ooh, ooh, just the one. <laughs> and we go to the Angel Pub, and the day had gone. And it was very, it was painful looking back. You know, you can't survive in the finish on a, a couple of hours a, a day. The mm. friendship survived, thank mm. goodness. Mm. But we split up amicably as writers. But we did about 50 shows, all told. He was brilliant. He worked on the Doctor in the House show. Yes, him, Doctor in the House. He was a doctor, obviously, so yeah. he, he brought medical yeah. jargon to the, to the script Yeah, because well. if you wrote for Frost, of course, we were a whole gang. People say to me at my advanced age, you wrote for everybody. I say, we wrote for everybody. Mm. Never wrote alone. John Junkin, we saw today, John and I wrote a lot together. And we were a whole gang. I knew the whole of Monty Python before they were Monty Python. Monty Feldman and John Law. Yeah, and, and Keith Waterhouse, people, Willis Hall yeah, people. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's amazing looking yeah, back. Yeah. Did a, uh, a weekend show. Was he, he, was, he was doing a show in England and checking off to New York, wasn't he? Yeah, David Frost. he lived on Concord. Yeah. Amazing. The man was doing two television series in a week, one in England, one in America. Mm -hmm. And we used to call it, it's just off the plane face. <laughs> 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 he came like making himself a bit late. He liked to get the tension going. I was his warm-up man often, so he was standing there watching me do the warm-up and not making any attempt to move in. Remember Boutros Boutros Gali? No, David's in makeup with his mobile phone. He went, Boutros Boutros, always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> when they do a, a documentary or a drama doc about a comedian, the dark side, the mask of comedy. And this woman's interviewing me, and I, I, t I could tell what her agenda was. The dark side of Les Dawson. I thought, well, you're on a loser here. I wouldn't go there, whatever she said. And the two great professionals, the cameraman and the sound man, were behind her. Never seen it before or since. They're pulling faces at me. Going, <laughs> <laughs> and in desperation, finally, Robert, she says, was there a Les Dawson nobody ever saw? I said, if there was, nobody ever saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the cameraman laughed and ruined the take. It was <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Know that cliche of the broken-hearted clown? I mean, there are real examples, to, you know, like Tony Hancock, you know, yeah. and so on. And, oh, boy. And the great BBC, who are going through very troubled times now, um, Great, but the happy times, the happiest times, were at Thames with Kenny, because we were in the studio, no audience, just recording all day long. 
And it was the only show I ever worked on where nobody said quiet. There was no countdown, no quiet. If you heard anything, any laughing, it was the crew. We never asked them to, that'd be insulting, but it's the only show I worked on where the crew just loved it because they, they, they loved him, they fought mm. to get on the show. But you heard laughing, it was them. And one of the cameramen went into the car park and nicked a bike for us because we needed it for a sketch. <laughs> <laughs> he returned it. <laughs> oh, and um, Kenny had these big polystyrene hands. And uh, we were doing the thing once, and just before we did it, I had a little word to them, and he oh, yes, yes. And he comes towards the camera, discards the hands, gets hold of the camera by the autocue box, and the cameraman let him do it, obviously, loved it. Turned it round, and there's people trying to get out of shot. There's a dusty floor, plastic coffee cups littered all over the place. And Kenny said, ooh, the glamour of it all. <laughs> and we got to the BBC, and we were doing something else, and I said to him, didn't tell Bill Wilson, the producer. He did exactly the same thing, BBC camera. Ooh, the glamour of it all. And Bill came down from the gallery and said, very funny, Kenny. Can we do it again? There's a bit of a shadow on your face. I said, we do tat, Bill. That's what it's about. We do tacky. Of course there's a shadow on his face. That was the difference, BBC. Mm. They wanted to mould him into being a BBC comedian. More polished. And he became brilliant with the studio audience. Mm. They loved him. But the, the Thames days, we were just doing our thing in the studio all day. Our boss, a man we liked, called Philip Jones, they said if he had a boss office upstairs, he said, if Philip ever finds out what we're doing down here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we were sort of rebellious. We were a modest little version of Eric and Ernie's show. They had all the great guests, actors and actresses and everything, and we, all the musos, you know, Jeff Richard and Rod Stewart yeah. and... Uh, Freddie Mercury and David Bowie, they all wanted to be on with Everett and be insulted. <laughs> <laughs> and you had some great comedy guests on the uh, Kenny Everett's Christmas Carol. Got, uh, yeah, with uh, Peter Cook the aforementioned Spike Milligan, yeah. Peter Cook, Willie Rushton. They were the ghosts of Christmas past Dream and team. all that. Yeah, not a bad team. <clears throat> and the great Milligan uh, was booked and arrived early. So my unofficial role was the greeter. So, oh, Spike's arrived, go and bring him in, Baz. So uh, Spike was there and I brought him into the studio. And on every camera was autocue. And Spike said to me, what's that? I said, don't worry, Ev's brilliant. He picks it up so quickly. Uh, don't worry, he can, you know, you don't even know he's looking at the autocue. <laughs> and then Ev came in the studio, overawed, because Spike Milligan was a guest. And uh, Spike said, Everett, just seen all this autocue. Remind me to send you an assassin for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it calmed down. <laughs> Ev was brilliant. Jeffrey Palmer, uh, the actor who did a, a show with us, said he was dismayed to see all this autocue. He thought Everett hasn't learned his lines. He couldn't believe, after one quick run-through, that Everett knew it. And he said, I didn't even see him looking at autocue once anyway. Jeffrey thought, how do you do that? <laughs> I've been going wrong all these years, he thought. <laughs> no, he's an amazing character. The only non-comedian I ever wrote for. He was a one-off. You can't say somebody's a sort of Kenny Everett. Mm. There's only one. Absolutely, yeah. And you wrote a feature film, you and Ray, didn't you? Called The Bloodbath of the House of Death. Yes, yes. Which is a classic. No, it of, is, honestly. Of hallowed memory, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Vincent Price, no less, in it. And... Uh, yeah, we, uh, 
Ah, prior to that, uh, Ray and I had written uh, a script, a film script forever, called Suicide the Movie. <laughs> <laughs> a jolly comedy about a man who kept threatening to kill himself, and people went, oh dear, we must let him do that. And it became an enormous success in life, because mm. he kept threatening to kill himself, and people said, no, give him the job, no, do that, no, no. Anyway, that was the script. We did a, a test run of it uh, with uh, Joanna Lumley did the trial real and then you couldn't make this up Stanley Kubrick had got The Shining the film out and they were doing radio commercials for it and Kubrick said I don't want the cliche voice I don't want The Shining I don't want that and he'd heard Everett on the radio he said that's the man I want that's the voice I want <laughs> Everett was turning cartwheels. He said, I don't believe this. I'm, I'm going to have tea with Mr. Kubrick. And he goes out to the <laughs> lovely house, and he said Stanley Kubrick wasn't remotely reclusive or eccentric. They just chatted and laughed. And uh, Stanley Kubrick said, what, what are you doing at the moment, Kenny? He said, oh, my chums have written a film script for me. Yes, yes. And then Stanley Kubrick said, what's it called? And Everett said, Suicide the Movie. And Stanley Kubrick said, I want to do it. <laughs> he wanted to do, a, you know, a comedy after The Shining and all that stuff. And Everett, turning further cartwheels, Mr Kubrick wants to do our film. And Ray Cameron said, well, he's not having it. I said, what? He said, it won't be our film anymore. I said, who gives it? Anyway, there we go again. It was oh, never gosh. sent a script to whether it would ever have happened. But yeah. the great if-onlys, you know, Stanley Kubrick. Oh, boy. That's, that's a big if-only, that one. Yeah, yeah. and we got the great Vincent Price was in Bloodbath at the House of yeah. Death. Yeah. And, uh, oh, Graham Stark, festooned with cameras. Brilliant photographer, Graham. And if you think I'm a name-dropper, Graham had worked with Burt Lancaster and all the big film names. But he hadn't met Vincent Price. And we're in a, uh, a bar... No, we're not in a bar. We're outside Potter's Bar. Freudian slip. We're, we're in the woods outside Potter's Bar. Start again. Can we have a pause? Of course, yeah. We're in the woods outside Potter's Bar and Vincent Price is sitting on a tree stump smoking his Marlborough. And Graham starts it. Baz, I never met Vincent. I said, and so you shall. And took him over, introduced him to Vincent and that was that. And they chat away. And then I went away. And before email, a few days later, I got a beautiful handwritten card from Vincent Price. Thank you for introducing me to Graham. What wonderful company. He appeared to mention everybody with the possible exception of two popes. <laughs> and you've got to celebrate people. When dear Graham left, his wife said, tell that story at the funeral, and I did. And it was lovely. And that was the film that Vincent Price said you'd gone white in the name of comedy, was that right? Oh, yes. Because you'd met him years before. Yeah, I'd written yeah. for him on television. Yeah. We'd written for him on television, and we got to know him and everything. And then he, he came back. I think it was to do that film. I don't know my hair had changed dramatically, and he looked across the room and said, oh, my God, the child has gone white in the service of comedy. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can watch a show you hosted um, for Yorkshire TV called Joker's Wild, where you're dark-haired and... Yes. And permanently smoking. And the voice, voices get deeper. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Ronnie Corbett, my old friend, the other day, and Ronnie, Ronnie's voice is down there now. And uh, I said, have you noticed something, Ron? He said, what? I said, our voices have got lower. 
<laughs> and I've got a DVD where Robert said this show Joker. Welcome to Joker's Wild. The voice is up there. Was it higher and there just before on Hello Cheeky? More mellow, a bit mellow. Yeah, yeah. A few years later. But Joker's Wild, do everybody on that show. Oh, it's been. I call it being paid for a day out. It was marvellous. John Cleese did it. And it was he was daunted by it. Uh, he travelled up on the breakfast train we used to get to Leeds and Ted Ray and Arthur Oskey talking away. And John said, it must have seemed rude, but he was completely overwhelmed by the company he was in. So he sat over there with a penguin book just reading while he's having his breakfast. And I said, do that on the show. He said, what? I said, do that on the show. Be reading a book. Because, you know, his image and part and everything. And I'd press the button, the card would come up. And uh, I said, oh, to Mr. Cleese, I addressed him. Mr. Cleese, yes, your subject is mothers-in-law. What? <laughs> mothers-in-law. Oh, my God. And he put a bookmark very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and then told the joke we'd given him. And it, it was just great. The other comics loved it. We had non-comedians on, you know, Michael Aspel and people would do it. They, it was lovely. They, Sid James came on, didn't he? Yeah, interrupting each other. They tried to revive it. Uh, and Paul Merton was involved. And a guy called Richard Morton was me. <laughs> uh, and it didn't work with younger comics because they don't tell jokes. Mm. You, you know, if they're doing a narrative or some observational comedy, it's not as funny when you butt in. But if you say this elephant went into a pub and another comic buzzes and says, and the elephant, <laughs> then it works, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of the great guys on that was a comedian called Ray Martin, oh. who, who was probably the worst comic in the history of comedy, but, but, but brilliant with it. He was, oh, he yes. was that bad. Well, he was, he was overtly yeah. gay. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, swimming against the tide, Ray. He was absolutely brilliant. My, my wife adored him. He used to ring up and say to me, is that old slag there this morning? <laughs> <laughs> my wife would beam if it was Ray who said that. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, he's a one-off Ray Martin. He went too early. And I'm writing a book now, because Barry's helping me with this, called Forgotten Heroes of Comedy. And, and thank you. And uh, one pleasure there. Um, and Ray Martin's in the book, so I, yeah, I think he's fabulous. I'm glad, he, he, I'm glad about he, that. He makes me howl. He's so sort of deadpan and the worst gags ever, but he's brilliant. Yeah, he had a minor bird uh, in his flat that used to tell you to fuck off when you walked in. <laughs> Where do you get that from? <laughs> oh, don't get me started on parrots and minor oh, birds. Oh, God, so. OK. Uh, talking about Joker's Wild, that was the, I think that was a time when you almost met Harold Lloyd, was that right? Uh, on Joker's Wild? Your memory. Oh. Um, yeah, I was, uh, we did it in, in Leeds. And, no, I was working with uh, Les Dawson at the time. And I went up on the Wednesday or whatever uh, for some rehearsals with Les. And they said, oh, you should have been here last night. I said, what? He said, Harold Lloyd was here in Leeds doing something. And being interviewed and everything. Why Another if only I missed him. Why was he in I don't know. It was a book out or something. Oh, okay. I don't know. But uh, I heard him by uh, Radio 4 Extra, the great digital. Uh, there was an inter Harold Lloyd being interviewed on the radio. Mm -hmm. Completely humanist. <laughs> Very precise and brilliant and technical. But not a trace of jollity or laugh or smile. He was just talking about the job of doing it. You know, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. He became very wealthy uh, property owner in, in, uh, in America. And well, they owned, him and uh, Chaplin owned every foot of film in the finish, right, didn't yeah, they? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Stan and Ollie didn't, and the great Buster Keaton, who had to be writing for other comics mm. in the finish, mm. the great man. Well, we talked about Marty Feldman um, before we came on, and, and he, like Buster Keaton, was you know, ruined by the Hollywood system, wasn't he, really? Yeah. So. Oh, but they were great, Keaton. And yeah. uh, as I say, the others were innate businessmen. They thought, this is the game, I'm going to own this, and they got it tight. Uh, the great Hal Roach, who had uh, Stan and Ollie, Laurel and Hardy on the contract, had them on alternating contracts. Stan's would finish in October and Ollie's would finish in January. So they couldn't leave together. <laughs> the F word keeps cropping up. I've mm. just remembered another story. <laughs> they thought they were has-beens. They, they really thought we've had a great time, but it's over. And I think it was Bernard Delfont here said those men could do a stage show. Mm. They couldn't believe what happened to them when they came to England. Hundreds of people at Southampton when they got off and then they went over to Europe and they were just thrilled and, and delighted. And the story was they were in London and an agent we all knew called Billy Marsh was looking after them. And they'd been for lunch in Regent Street or whatever and they're walking down the street and there's a man selling newspapers. In those days there were three evening papers, Star News and Standard. Star News and Standard! And Billy said, excuse me, boys, I'm going to buy a paper. And uh, Ollie came with him and Stan held back. And the news vendor, this man, looks up. It's Oliver Hardy there. He can't believe it. And he couldn't help it. He said, where's Stan? And Ollie said, in my fucking pocket. <laughs> <laughs> what a quote from Oliver Hardy. No, they got on very well. But, the, you know, the endless, where's the other one? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose Eric and Ernie like, had the same. Like, no, when uh, Eric was having his health problems and was laid off with the heart and everything, Ernie had a lapel badge that said, he's very well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Talk, talking about uh, Howard Lloyd and, be, and being very sort of humourless, uh, was someone like Frankie Howard quite humourless in terms of his own comedy or, or not? Well, Frank was painfully serious when you were with him, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, he wasn't a life and soul of the party or anything. He was very entertaining company, but... Uh, my God, you'd feel a bit depressed after an evening <laughs> with him sometimes. And the thing, very sad looking back, uh, Bruce Forsyth left at the height of his fame, Generation Game, went to ITV. Excuse me. And Bill Cotton, our boss, who we liked very much, he thinks, oh, what are we going to do? You know, replace Bruce on Generation Game. Mm. Frankie Howard rang up and offered to audition. He said, I'll audition. Frank was never cut out to be a chairman or host. He was a brilliant panellist and interrupter and everything. And uh, Bill said, oh, Frank, that's very interesting. Oh, I'll think about that. And then what happened was Larry Grayson got the job. Yeah, yeah. Frankie Howard's bet noir. He said he's stolen my act. Because, you know, Larry had a pianist and all mm -hmm. that that Frank used to do. So. Yeah. so anyway, I was with Frank one day and we went to his local restaurant, Kensington High Street, and... Uh, what possessed me, I don't know. We're chatting away about this, that and the other, and I happened to mention Larry Grayson. His voice got louder. I swear his eyes went moist, people looking. That man! I thought, oh, what have I done? He had an obsession about Larry Grayson. Yeah, yeah. But Frank said everybody had stolen his act. <laughs> Kenneth Williams, oh, stole my act. And, and you would have to write the, the oohs and no mystery. Oh, he used you know. to play games as writers, Frank. If it, oh no, look here, missus, don't take a vote on it. If you didn't put those in, he'd say, where are those? 
And if you did put them in, he'd say, no, no, I'll do those. <laughs> He's very popular with writers because we got paid by the minute. <laughs> he could make one page last ten minutes. We like that. Yeah. But he used all the greats, didn't he? Obviously, Golden Simpson and Peter Cook and Johnny Spate. And oh, all yeah. Those but it's, it, Frank's career was like a roller coaster. I always said it was a series of comebacks. Mm. He always went in and out of fashion, and then a new generation discovered him. But the writers all liked him. And his big. Peter Cook had him on at the establishment club that he'd started in Greek Street. And that went well. And then he was asked to appear on That Was the Week That Was, the big programme. And several of them got together and did it for nothing. Johnny Spate and Ray and Allen. They wrote him a routine for nothing. He said, We'd never get paid for this, but it's Frank. And he was back again. Yeah, yeah. And then he got a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, Larry Gelbart and Bert Shevelov, <laughs> two Broadway veterans, were having dinner with John Gilgood here, and Zero Mostel, who'd done it on Broadway, didn't want to come or couldn't come to England. And these two American veterans said to John Gilgood, who could do funny thing happen on the way to the forum? He said, Frankie Howard, straight away. Frank was now on another dip. He was in pantomime at Coventry. He wasn't even the star. Sid James was, Frank was billed underneath. I'd love to know what they made of it initially, these two American Broadway <laughs> veterans <laughs> go to see a pantomime in Coventry. <laughs> but Larry Galbart told me, so we walked out of the theatre saying Gilgood was right. Yeah. So Frank did that and that led to up Pompeii on telly and he was back again, yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing career. And right at the end, bless him, Peter Vincent, my mate, we went, Oxford Union, this is on YouTube, I think, whole generation again, students, Frank walks on, the place goes mad, and he, he was really on great form. He wasn't well, we knew that, but he was on great form. And at the interval, I met another writer friend, Ian Davidson, he said, Baz, come in the library. You can watch all this, sit in an armchair and have a drink. I said, oh yeah, I'll have a bit of that. So I'm sitting, in the second half, Frank referred to me and the camera cut to an empty seat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gone, has he? <laughs> oh, he, he called his young, I was one of the young fans that, when he came back to do the student tour, basically, he called them, uh, us, his Frankie Pankies. So yes. I was very proud to be a Frankie Panky. Yes. He was, uh, he was brilliant live. Well, he was an original. Yeah. Frankie Howard yeah. was a one-off. I mean, Somebody said he looked, looked like a member of the audience had shambled onto the stage. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Listen, Baz, I, I could go on for days talking to you about comedy, but uh, it's got to half past five and I need to throw it to the audience because I've got a time restriction. So if there are any questions from the audience, please put your hands up. Yes, then. Have you met any um, American uh, comedian writers like Carl Reiner and, and Mel Brooks and all that? Yeah, touching on that, by the way, I'm very unpatriotic because having worked with these great names, people say, who was your idol? Uh -huh. And uh, my absolute idol was Jack Benny, uh -huh. who I worked twice with over here. He was definitive to me. He played a mean, conceited coward. He was a lovely man, lovely man to work with. The audience knew what the joke was. And uh, he liked other people getting laughs. I'll tell you, that's pretty rare. He liked to be the butt of the joke. Then he'd get the laugh on his reaction. I've got a DVD at home uh, of the Jack Benny show on television. No jokes, it's all atmosphere and character, it's superb. 
And the sketch starts with Jack on his own reading the menu in the restaurant. And James Stewart and his wife walk on. No rubbish, these guests. <laughs> Enormous applause. James Stewart's first line was, Oh no, it's Benny. And they hide behind their menus. And somebody asked James Stewart for his autograph. Jack Benny hears the word autograph and stands up. Comes face to face with James Stewart, who's now very embarrassed. Oh, oh, hello, Jack. This is my wife, Gloria. Hello, Gloria. James Stewart's fighting for something to say. It was brilliant. Are you, are you missing television, Jack? This is on the Jack Benny TV show. <laughs> I'm on every Wednesday night. Well, well we're, we're, we're sort of... Uh, we're, we're sort of out every Wednesday night. <laughs> How can you be out every Wednesday night? And Gloria Stewart said, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wandered off a bit there. But... <laughs> Carl Reiner and... Uh, Carl Reiner I'd never met, my goodness. I met Mel Brooks. There's a lovely man called Dom DeLuise. We were doing... Des O'Connor show, I think, Elstree, and Don was on it. And uh, Mel Brooks was lovely, Anne Bancroft and his wife, and they walked into makeup. And Dom introduced me to them. I thought, oh my God, it's them. And Dom said, uh, this is Barry Cryer. And Mel Brooks said, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Oh boy, I wanted um, this year, March the 22nd, my birthday's on the 23rd. Mel Brooks did one night at the Prince of Wales Theatre. And my wife said, treat yourself for your birthday, go and see Mel Brooks. And I happened to be in Leicester Square shortly afterwards. I thought, yeah. went in the Prince of Wales Theatre and there's box office guy. And he said, hello, and I said, hello. Anything left for Mel Brooks? He said, oh, oh, I've got a stalls here if you could have. I said, oh, great, how much? 500 pounds. I said, well, the thought was there. <laughs> <laughs> what? I just hoped it was for charity or something. No, I, I mean, I admire that man so much, but I wasn't going to pay 500 quid to sit and watch him. hope a DVD comes out yeah, eventually sure, or something. Sure. Any more questions? We haven't even touched on Clue yet, have we? Over there. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, Barry. Um Bringing it up to date, or, or, or more recent anyway, Mrs. Hudson's Christmas corker at the Wiltons was, I thought, a triumph. Saw it twice. Any more like that? And, and yeah, it's it's an interesting story that because uh, our youngest son, Bob, and I wrote this Mrs. Hudson's diary, Charlotte Holmes' landlady, obviously, and which had menus and photographs and all sorts of stuff in it, and Wiltons, who we like very much, Francis and the gang at Wiltons, lovely. Uh, they wanted to do uh, a stage show based on it. Then Bob, our son, gets his laptop out and shows me uh, four people called Spy Monkey, who are visual slapstick and everything. I thought they'd be a great element in it. And, uh, and that was that. And then we met them. That was fine. And then nothing happened. We never we were asked to sit around the table and discuss it with them or anything. At one point, I wasn't there, Bob, my co-writer, was asked very politely to leave. We're, get, we're getting on with this. So I, I agree, I was very happy for Wilton's, the show, I saw it. Great success at Wilton's, bore no resemblance to... We'd written a whole show. Two of them admitted they hadn't even read the script. 
But I'm pleased for Wilton's because the show went well, but it bore no resemblance to what we were doing at all. Fascinating. Yeah. We welcomed them and they responded by rejecting us, you know, so no. Oh, we've got Mrs. Hudson. Yeah, that'll do. But it was going to be a book originally, wasn't it? Was that the It was a book first. It was a book. Yeah, it was a book. Yeah, it was a book. And then yeah. uh, Wilton's read the book and said, we okay. want to do a stage yeah, yeah, show yeah, of yeah, this. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions out there? Come on. Must be. I can go on, you know. It's okay. Yes, right at the back. Hello, Barry. Um, Hello, sorry. You say that um, you work often as either a duo or part of a team. A lot of the time people say that in a duo, one is a writer and one paces up and down. Which are you? I was a scribbler. Yeah, and it's interesting. You'd be the laptop or something now, but I've compared notes with, well, my idols, you know, Ray Galton, Alan Simpson, Frank Muir, Dennis Norton, everybody. There tends to be the pace her up and down and the, the other one's got to get it down on paper or on the screen or something. Yeah, it was a cliche which uh, apparently it's true, you can always generalise about two writers or three, you know there's somebody walking about all the time Junkin, John Junkin used to walk around the room twiddling his glasses being Eric Morecambe <laughs> he, could, he could do a brilliant Eric Morecambe and You've got to hear the voice and see them in your head when you're writing for them. You could write the same routine for four or five different people and it would be different because it wouldn't... They would do it like that and they would do it like that. You know, you try and match the people. You don't always get it right, but you try. It's all about American comedians. You'd worked for Phil Silvers and Bob Hope, obviously a British, but in America. Did you find that a, a different sort of um, discipline? Well, the, the Bob Hope from was very... Junkin and I wrote his thousands version of Thanks for the Memory, full of topical jokes to sing on Parkinson. And John couldn't come on the night of the recording. I'm now sitting with Bob Hope behind the scenery. He hadn't even met Parker. He wasn't going to meet him before he was going on to be interviewed. And uh, Bob Hope said to me, what's this guy Parkinson like? I said, he'll interview you from a kneeling position. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed, uh, yes, yeah. And then I couldn't believe it. I said, but you're Bob Hope. And i never forget what he said. He said, yes, I'm Bob Hope. I'm world famous. And he said, if I don't make them laugh in two or three minutes, they'll say, oh, that's the great Bob Hope, is it? Still constructively insecure, mm -hmm. not complacent at all. And he, he was talking to me afterwards. He was on a dip himself, the great man. He said the current generation didn't like him post-Vietnam. They thought he was some sort of hawk, friend of the president. That man... It went all over in the Second World War, all over the place. Could have got killed several times entertaining the troops. Mm. But the younger generation went, oh, hope, you know. Oh. Fascinating. Sure. Still insecure. The really good people are not complacent. I noticed that. They're still, Eric Morecambe, still worried about it. We've got to get this show right, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not just going on, oh, it's wonderful. One last question, I think. Yes, finally. How, how difficult or easy was it you, for you to write from... Sort of the, like, the stand-up variety comics like Freddie Howard and Tommy Cooper and that, and then transfer your writing to someone like Kenny Everett, who's off the wall. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a tailor making suits. <laughs> you know, I got, I'd known Kenny before that as a friend and bumped into him at Do's and everything. But, no, that's a fair question. I don't know. You just adapt. Ray Cameron was a that was the first time Ray and I had written together. We'd worked together on Joker's Wild because he was co-divisor of that. Mm -hmm. But Ray was a good influence. He had a good visual sense. 
And, uh, yeah, you just get on with it. You hope the chemistry works. It doesn't always work with two writers. John Cleese and I sat down to write a sketch once and gave up. Just started <laughs> laughing. Because <laughs> I wanted to write it in a white heat and then chuck it in the bin and start again. And he wanted to go back to page one, <laughs> analysing every line and every word. We just laughed. It's not working. Uh, Johnny Spate, the great Spate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankie Howard, now at Yorkshire Television. Francis Howard in concert and Johnny Spate. I couldn't believe I'd been hired as a co-writer with Johnny Spate. Same thing. Johnny and I started talking that, and we just laughed. He went off for a drink. So we wrote half the show each. We do it on computer now, I suppose. We wrote half the show each and then got together and knocked it into shape. But mm. He was a great lone wolf, Johnny Spate. I thought, I can't believe I'm writing with him. As it turned out, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned John Cleese, and he was in the first series of I'm um, Sorry I Haven't a Clue, um, which you obviously have been doing for the last well, the, the, how many the years? original, yeah, was yeah. Uh, it was a spin-off from I'm Sorry I'll Read That Again, mm. and uh, devised by Graham Garden, Sorry I Haven't a Clue, because they got lucky we were getting television work, and the BBC wanted a radio series. And the younger ones now often own their shows, which is quite right. Graham never registered it. So when we started doing our stage show two or three years ago, the BBC said, you can't use the title. That's ours. Mm. And I was talking to a journalist, and he said, what's all this about a stage show? And I said, blah, blah, blah. BBC said, we can't use the title. He took his pen out. <laughs> all over the papers the next day, and they backed off. They've got a percentage of it, yeah, but we're yeah. like an old rock band. We were in Norwich the other week, and 2,000 turned up. <laughs> it's the O2 any minute. <laughs> We thought if the audience are our age, they'd be dropping off. But we get families and students, and it's lovely. We grew up, mum and dad used to listen to you, and oh, it's yeah, great. Yeah. You had no idea that all those years ago it would still be going on. You know, no, it's, it's 40, incredible, isn't it? 43 years, 1972. Yeah. John left because he couldn't stand, you see, messing about. He wanted yeah. the script. And Bill Oddie was uh-huh. throwing up before every recording, bless him. And But Tim survived the transition, and then... Yeah, it wasn't regarded as anything special when it started. But it survived. And now for over 20 years, we've had the best producer we've ever had. John Naismith, brilliant man. Fantastic. It remains to just thank the legend that is Mr Barry Cryer. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at the Museum of Comedy, Bloomsbury, London. Museumofcomedy.com same time tomorrow. Bye.